Thank you, James and Marcy. What a blessing. What a privilege it is to have you all with us. And um, we are grateful. Let me encourage you to take your Bibles and turn to Philippians chapter 2. And we're going to begin reading in just a moment in verse 3. Philippians chapter 2, verse 3. The title of this morning's message is A Christmas Revolution. A Christmas Revolution. I don't know what you're planning to do tonight, but I do hope you're planning to come back at 6 o'clock for the presentation by our choir, Love Came Down. You don't want to miss it. If, um, if you need to be encouraged to think about what the Christmas season is all about, uh, I want to encourage you to be a part of that because the message and song, as well as the gospel that we'll be sharing, will help you uh, as you think about what Christmas is all about. Sometimes we get bogged down in the details of decorating and buying gifts. It's easy for us to lose track and lose sight of why we celebrate this season. Amen. Thank you, James and Marcy. It's good to hear them sing. What a blessing. Have you been blessed this morning? Well, good. I want to encourage you to take your Bibles and turn with me to Philippians chapter 2. We're going to begin reading in verse 3 in just a moment. The title of this morning's message is a Christmas revolution. Christmas revolution. And by the way, if you don't have other plans tonight, I hope you don't. If you, if you do, I, I think you can still get out of them. We have this program tonight, presentation by our choir called Love Came Down. And you've heard us talk about it, but if you've not been to one of these worship times provided by our music ministry, uh, you want to be here. And I don't know of anything that can better help put your thoughts and mind into the mode that it should be in for Christmas than something like that. So we want to encourage you to come and be a part of that. This morning, as we look at this passage of Scripture, uh, for the most part, Paul says good things to the people at Philippi, but there was some kind of problem, some kind of difficulty. We know that because of the way he warns them or cautions them in these verses as well as at the very end of the letter, uh, at the very end of the letter in Philippians 4.2, for example, he says, I implore you, Odia, and I implore Syntyche to be of the same mind in the Lord. And so if he's asking them to be of the same mind in the Lord, what does that tell you they weren't doing? They were not of the same mind in the Lord. So for whatever reason, these, these ladies who were so instrumental at the church at Philippi in terms of their personal ministry were having a relationship problem. And so as we read these verses, Paul's solution to this relationship problem is nothing short of a revolution in the way you and I do relationships and the way we think about ourselves and what we think about when we do relationships. Listen to what he says in verse 3 of Philippians 2. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility... Consider others better than yourselves. Each of you should look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. Your attitude or your mind, literally, should be the same as that of Jesus Christ or that of Christ Jesus. So the way that you think, he is saying, affects the way that you treat other people, particularly other people in the church. So that brings me to this opening statement that ties together what we're going to be looking at this morning. When the Holy Spirit begins to change you, He begins with your mind. 
You cannot live differently until you begin to think differently. It is the starting point for transformation that he wants to accomplish in your life. And you say, well, pastor, I've tried to change. I've read the scripture. I've prayed and so forth. Well, what what he's going to explain to us in the verses that follow will help you understand what it is that is missing, what it is you desperately need, and what you need to be a part of in order to change. Now, how can you change your thinking? In verse 5, it says your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus. That's in the New International Version. I'm using that today because this passage reads so well in the NIV. But here, there's a better way of looking at it. Let me tell you literally what it says. Instead of your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, it literally says this. Let this mind be in you, the one also in Christ Jesus. Let this mind, the mind of Christ, be in you, and it's the same mind of Jesus Christ. Immediately, when I read that, I think of 1 Corinthians 2.16, where Paul says to the people at Corinth, we have the mind of Christ. Those of us that know Jesus, we put our trust in him, the Holy Spirit lives in us, and through him we have access to the mind of Christ. And what's so significant about that is when you read that, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, that we have the mind of Christ. It's not talking about a reference library of the thoughts of Jesus that you tap into. It's not talking about what Jesus once thought at some point in the past. When he talks about let the mind, this mind be in you, it's talking about what Jesus is thinking right now. Not what he once thought, but what he is now thinking. Let that mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. And so the Holy Spirit wants to change you, but he wants to do it supernaturally. He wants to actually fill your thoughts with the thoughts of Jesus Christ, the current thoughts about your circumstance, about your situation, about in this case, the relational problem that was beginning to unfold at the church in Philippi. So a real practical question that comes up is, how can I recognize the mind of Christ inside my own mind? How do I know that this thought that I'm having is from from Christ? This is his thought versus my own thoughts. There's so much we could say about this, but in this particular passage of Scripture, There are certain indicators or markers that help us recognize the mind of Christ when he is in our mind. And to help us do that today, I've I've got some very familiar things that um, I'm not going to bring you up individually, but as a group here this morning, let's see how we do. I want to see if you can recognize these markers, these symbols, okay? So here's the first one. What is that? Target. Now say it with enthusiasm. Target. We don't have one in win. But it represents Target. What's the next one to represent? McDonald's. That's right. When my oldest daughter was little, we were driving around Los Angeles. If she saw that, she, would, she couldn't even speak English yet. She would holler out, Dida! Dida, that was her word for French fries. <laughs> and that's what came to mind when she saw that. Look at the next one. What does that represent? AT&T. Very good. The next one, what does it represent? 
All right, there you go, Amazon.com. What's the next one represent? Chilies, that's right, classic nachos with lots of guacamole on the side. That's my favorite. All right, what's the next one represent? Twitter, very good. Now, this one stumped some people in the last service. What does this represent? Girl Scouts. Is that right? Yeah, Girl Scouts of America. That's right. See, notice the crowd just dropped off a little bit right there. Okay, what does this next one represent? You know, I'm so impressed. I, that would have stumped me. But I guess, I, I know, Pringles. Okay, and then the next one, this, is, this might be a little tricky. What does this represent? What? Hyundai. Okay, I heard of some Hondas out there. Okay, and uh, it always fools me too. It is Hyundai, and it's their, their logo symbol. Now, how were you able to do that? How were you able to recognize those different things? Because there were familiar markings to you. There was something about that marking where you had seen it enough times that, that you knew what it was associated with. In the same way, you can recognize the mind of Christ. And although this passage of Scripture is talking about the incarnation, in fact, many scholars believe this is an ancient hymn. And this ancient hymn is older than what Paul is writing here to the Philippians. In fact, what he was probably doing, many scholars believe, is he was taking this ancient hymn that was probably shared among all the churches, and he was referring to it as a, an example of the mind of Christ. And, and so in, in taking this wonderful description of all that Jesus is, all that he has done, all that motivated him, he takes this and he applies it and he says, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. And you say, well, what was the mind that was in Christ Jesus? He's about to tell you. Here are the three defining characteristics of the mind of Christ that you can use to rec recognize when he is speaking to you or filling your thoughts. What are the marks of the revolutionary mind of Christ? Number one, I am on a mission for the Father. I am on a mission for the Father. Verse 6 says, Who being in the very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be Grass. Notice it says, who being in the very nature God. The word, Greek word, under the English word nature, is a Greek word morphe. And we got several English words that come from that that we use, like metamorphosis. And when we talk about metamorphosis, we're often describing something like the transformation of a caterpillar into a butterfly, right. And what happens is that the outward appearance of that caterpillar changes the outer structure the outer form of it changes and so most of the times when we talk about a uh, study of the morphology of something we're talking about the study of the outward appearance or form or structure of something and that's what we do with the word morphe in English but the original word referred more than just the outward appearance the original use of this word means the essence of something it means those qualities which make something what it is. Paul is saying Jesus Christ has the unique and identical qualities that make God, God. Jesus is the very substance of God. He possesses all of the characteristics of God. He is the very being of God. It says being in very nature God. That's who Jesus is. Now, right after that, being in the very nature of God, the very next phrase in the NIV says, 
did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. The New King James and the translations in that tradition say, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God. I don't know about you, but robbery sounds strange. Now, when I rob someone, which I haven't done, well, sometimes I take a piece of popcorn I wasn't supposed to take from somebody or something. But when I rob someone, what do I do? I snatch something for myself. It's gain for me. I grab it for myself. And what it's describing here is Jesus' attitude towards his own nature, his own deity. And it's very specific to use a negative to describe Jesus' mindset. Did not consider equality with God something to grasp. Did not consider it robbery to be equal with God. And so the idea is something that is seized and something that's desired and something that's hung on to. And the point is Jesus didn't do that. Now, you and I are not like that. If I've got something that gives me great significance, great influence, great power, I don't want to let go of that. But Jesus did let go of that. Now, why did he do it? Why did he release his, his rights? Why did he do what humanly to us is so unnatural? Why did he release his privileges? The Bible tells us in 1 John chapter 4, verse 9, the answer. This is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. So God loves you, God loves me so much that he sent Jesus into the world so we could live, okay? He sends Jesus. But this text is telling us that before God could send Jesus, he had to let go of something. He had to release something. He had to surrender something. Now, how would life change if I had that kind of mindset? To be sent, Jesus had to let go. In John 20, verse 21, Jesus said, As the Father has sent me, I also send you. See, Jesus let go because he had a mission to accomplish, to fulfill. And as you and I deal with a relationship problem, for example, that he's describing here. I can never forget or put in the back seat my sense of mission, my sense of being sent. That's why he tells them. He says, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, because I am sent. You say, well, you're a pastor. You have a calling from God. Every person here that knows Christ has a calling from God. You are sent. You are sent to do things. You have a mission. Male, female, old, young, doesn't matter. If you're a Christian, you are sent. You are sent to your family that doesn't know Christ. You are sent to your neighbors that don't know Christ. You are sent to people at school that don't know Christ. People in your workplace, people in the fields, people in this county, in this town that don't know Christ. You are sent. And I can recognize that the mind of Christ is beginning to affect me when I begin to get up every morning and, and wake up in a mission field even though my address may be in Arkansas. That's the mindset that Jesus Christ had, that I am on a mission for the Father. And you know it's Jesus when you begin to think that way. But there's another marker of the mind of Christ, this mind that should be thinking in real time our thoughts. 
with us. And that's this, number two. I am a slave of the Father. I am a slave of the Father. In verse 6 and 7, it, it goes on, it says, but made himself nothing. I mean, it just, it just becomes more amazing. He, he, he is sent. In order to be sent, he has to let go. And then it says further, he made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. Now, theologians and scholars have really wrestled with that phrase, but made himself nothing. The word that's used there has this basic idea of of emptying something out. And, And if you're a Bible scholar or Sunday school teacher, you've run across this expression of the kenosis theory or the kenotic theory. And it's this idea that somehow when Jesus became a human being, it was absolutely impossible for deity to dwell in human form. And so he emptied himself of all of his divineness, all of his divine nature in order to become a human being. And that's simply not true. When it says he made himself nothing, in the original expression that's there, a better way to describe it is not in terms of empty, it's in terms of rendering something inoperative, rendering something null and void. It would be very much what you and I do when we turn the engine off on our car. The engine's still there, the engine's still in the car, the engine is still functional if I choose to turn it on, but I have rendered it null and inoperative by turning it off. A, a very similar use of this word, the very same word occurs in 1 Corinthians 1.17. For Christ did not send me to baptize, Paul says, but to preach the gospel, not with words of human wisdom, that's not the power source, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. In other words, if I try to present the gospel in my own strength using human ingenuity, I actually take the message of the cross and I render it inoperative. I render it null and void. I turn off the very source of power that makes the gospel so amazing. Did Jesus give up his deity? No. Not for one moment did he stop being God. He could not have been God with us. That's what Emmanuel means. He could not have been God with us unless he was fully and always God. When it says being the very nature of God earlier in the text, being in the very nature of God means right now, always, continuously, he possesses the nature of God. And so he is always God. He never stopped being God. Charles Wesley wrote about it in this way in words that you may find familiar from the 18th century, veiled in flesh the Godhead see, hail the incarnate deity, pleased as man with us to dwell, Jesus our Emmanuel. So how did he do this? How did he, in effect, render inoperative his deity without ever giving it up, without ever losing it? Well, Paul tells us he did it by taking the very nature of a servant. Look at the text. Made himself nothing, How? Taking the very nature of a servant and being made in human likeness. So how did he do it? He says, okay, I I don't know what the conversation was, but he is fully God. He renders it inoperative. What does he do instead? I'm not going to live with my divine power and abilities and strengths and so forth. I'm going to live as a servant. I'm going to live as a human being, an ordinary, flesh and blood, mortal human being fully God 
but it says he took on the nature of a servant, fully a servant, fully a human being. Very same word for nature there. And so in his essence, he was God, but also in his essence, he was man. And not just an ordinary man. In the sense that he became a servant, he subjected himself completely and fully to the Father. And the word used there for servant is doulos. He became a slave, a house slave, in a sense, to the Father as his master, where everything, everything, everything belonged to the Father. He became a slave. Why did Jesus take on the nature of a slave? 2 Corinthians 8, 9 answers it this way. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, so that you through his poverty might become rich. He was rich, he became poor, which made you rich. Paul says he did this for your sakes. He took the role of a servant. You've got to understand, in that day and time, when he said that he became a servant, a slave, he wasn't a little you know, little man with an English accent with a little white towel over his arm, you know, from Downton Abbey. He was a slave. No rights. No privileges. No freedom. He was possessed. He was owned by the master. I got a friend in here. David, escort him out. <laughs> All right, look up here. Look up here. Don't worry about the bird. Jesus will watch over the bird. He promised that in his word. That's biblical. He took the role of a servant or a slave in relationship to the Father so that you and I could become sons and daughters of the same Father. He gave up everything to be a slave so that you could be a son, so that you could be part of the family. How would that change my life if I began to think like that? If I began to think like a slave? A couple things. One, I would be a little bit less angry. Seriously. What makes you angry? When you're, <laughs> this is amazing. Why don't you come up here, friend? Yeah, come on. When you're driving down the road and someone cuts you off and you get upset because someone jerked into your lane, okay, when they do that, um, you get mad. Why? Because you have a right to that lane. When someone treats you with disrespect, calls you a name, says something about you that's not true, whatever the case may be, and you get upset, why do you get upset? Because you have a right in your mind to be treated a certain way to be respected in a certain way. Most of the time when you and I get angry, it's because of some perceived violation of something that I have a right to. And what happens when you begin to think like Jesus is that you don't have to become angry because as a slave you have no rights. You have no freedoms. You have given all those up when you chose to follow Jesus Christ. And you've got to understand this was Paul's primary way of understanding who he was. At the beginning of all his letters, he sometimes says, Paul, an apostle by the will of God, and with Timotheus or Timothy, our brother, and it refers to them as brothers and him as apostles. But more than any other way of describing himself, Paul said, Paul, a bondservant of Jesus Christ. Paul, 
a slave of Jesus Christ. That's how he identified himself. And if I begin to think of myself in that way and the mind of Christ begins to fill my mind, I can begin to deal with anger differently. I also should begin to give. As a slave, I own nothing. Nothing is mine. When I encounter human need the way Jesus did, I can give it up. I can give it away. It means I can serve. And I should begin thinking like a servant. That as Jesus came into this world and gave up his riches and became poor so that I could become rich, I can serve and meet the needs of others according to the leading and direction of the master. So one of the markers, the first marker is that I'm on a mission for the Father. Jesus gave up everything to do what the Father was sending him to do. It means I'm a slave of the Father. The mindset of Jesus was that I'm here to do the will of the Father in everything. But there's one more marker, the mind of Christ, and it's this, number three. I am dependent on the Father. If you'll understand what I'm about to say in this third point, it will change your thinking forever about Jesus Christ and what he did on earth. Because the incarnation, what makes it so amazing is not that God, not only that God chose to take on human form, but that he actually chose to live as a human being. A human being, just like you and me. Listen to what he says in verse 8. And being found in appearance as a man, what, the, what does he done, do next? He humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. I want you to notice what Paul's saying here. Jesus did not make himself obedient. He says he became obedient, but what came first? He humbled himself and became obedient. So Jesus didn't make himself obedient. Sometimes we have the idea, okay, I've become a Christian. I belong to Christ now. I'm going to obey him. This is what the Bible says, so I'm going to go and do it. Not bad, but they did the very same thing in the Old Testament. didn't work out so well. You will never achieve the level of obedience that you may desire to achieve that way. No, there's a, there's a step further back. He did not make himself obedient. The Bible says he humbled himself. What did he do? He made himself dependent. And then he became obedient. Why so many times in Scripture do you see people experience hardship and difficulty? And and when the challenge comes and an enemy comes, a, a military force comes, and they are at a worse position than they were before they had the difficulty. So many times we find ourselves weaker and weaker and weaker in this life with less resources, less ability to deal with the challenges that are before me. Why is that? Because that's where God takes us. Jesus humbled himself. Many of us have yet to be humbled. The whole concept of humbling is coming lower and lower and lower to a place to where I've got nothing else but to depend on the Father with my life. If I'm going to make it, it's going to be because he takes care of me. If I'm going to have the strength to do this thing that he's asking me to do, it's because he empowers me to do it. If I'm going to know how to navigate this difficult decision or this problem that I've got, it's because he comes and fills my mind with the direction that I need. He humbled himself. He put himself in a low 
place. It does not come naturally. It does not come automatically. He did this to himself. But when you see Christ obedient, it is a manifestation of his dependence on the Father for everything. That's what made him so amazing in his incarnation. He was showing you and I what humanity looks like when a person lives in relationship to the Father. When Jesus needed to know what to do, God showed him. He didn't, he didn't act independently. He didn't think it up for himself. In John 5, 19, Jesus gave them this answer. I tell you the truth. The Son can do nothing by himself. The Son can do nothing by himself. He can do only what he sees his Father doing. If Jesus lived that way, what makes you and I think we can live any other way? Everything he did. He did because the Father empowered him to do it. When Jesus needed to know what to say, God guided him. In John 12, verse 49, he says, For I did not speak of my own accord, but the Father who sent me commanded me what to say. You and I don't share our faith sometimes because we're afraid. I'm not going to know what to say. What does he intend to do? He says, you go, get into that position, get into that place. Be obedient. Go here. Go there. Engage with this person. I'll fill your mouth. I'll put the thoughts in your head. I'll guide you in that moment what I'm thinking and what you need to think and what you need to say. Moment by moment, dependence on the Father Jesus, not for one moment, did anything less than that, and he did it as a human being. You say, well, wait a minute, Pastor. What about the feeding of the 5,000? I can't do that. What about healing of sick people? What about these miracles? What about exorcism and casting out of demons? What about walking on the water thing? Goodness. And I want you to hear me very carefully. This is not heresy. This is the truth. Everything Jesus did, he did as a human being dependent on the Father. Everything. Everything. Jesus said, as the Father sent me, so send I you. What would it look like if over the next six weeks everybody in Wind Baptist Church that knows Jesus depended on the Father for everything they were to say and do? How different, how different would Sunday morning be if we came together to celebrate what God did this week? Jesus chose to live on earth as an ordinary human being. How would life change if I thought like this? How would life change if I, I thought like this? Well, it means suddenly I have no more excuses. Whatever it is I thought I had to do or I had to have before I could serve the Lord, that's gone. If I know Christ and his spirit lives in me, I have the mind of Christ. I can know what Jesus wants in every moment of every day. I feel like St. Francis of Assisi. <laughs> Go and preach a gospel to every creature in Mark 16, 15. And St. Francis of Assisi took that literally, and he preached to the squirrels and the birds and, and everybody else. This bird's got more sense than most people in wind. <laughs> it means I've got no more excuses. 
If this mindset of Christ that I am dependent on the Father begins to take hold in my own thinking and in my own mind, it means I've got no excuses. I can do everything the Father says for me to do. I can do everything the Father says for me to do. I can do everything the Father says for me to do. I don't have to be successful. I don't have to be wonderful. I don't have to be amazing. It's not about what I can do for God. It's about what He wants to do through me. George Mueller was a pastor in the 19th century. And he started a string of orphanages in the United Kingdom to take care of children. He, he had felt called to be a missionary, and so when he got to the UK to pastor a little church there, he noticed all these children in the streets, and they didn't have a father or a mother taking care of them, and they were street urchins. And And he started these orphanages to take them in, to take care of them. He did it all by depending on the Father. He did not have the ability in himself to do it. He wasn't wealthy. He was just an ordinary pastor. One morning, the house mother of the orphanage informed George Mueller, the children are dressed and ready for school, but there is no food for them to eat. You think, okay, she's a house mother of the orphanage. How bad can that be? It's 300 kids. 300 kids, ready to go to school, but they haven't had breakfast. They don't have any food in the orphanage. So Mueller says, have them all sit down. And they all sit down at the tables, just like there was food there. And he said, now let's pray and give thanks. And so he thanked God for the food that wasn't there. A little while after that, I mean just a few minutes later, while they sat there looking at their tables, there was a knock at the door, and a baker appeared at the door, and he said, I don't understand it. This is what he said. I didn't get this in the first hour, but this is what he said. He said, I don't understand it. He said, but I couldn't sleep last night. And so I got up early, and I baked a bunch of extra bread. And I felt led to come and bring it to you. Do you need some bread this morning? And he brought in enough for each of the children to have something to eat. And it wasn't much longer after that, there was another knock at the door, and the milkman had been carrying his load of milk past the orphanages, when, when one of the, the wheels on the wagon broke and fell off and he couldn't get it fixed. And he said, he said, Brother Mueller, he said, I, by the time someone comes and fixes this wheel, all the milk is going to spoil. He said, can you use this milk in the orphanage? And everybody ate. And everybody drank and that took care of breakfast. And that was the story of his life. All the time. All the time depending on God to provide, not just for hundreds, but ultimately thousands of children. When he was young, he grew up wealthy, and he actually went to a Bible school to study in Germany, and, and he made fun of the Christian kids. In fact, he grew up, and he, he was just a mess, and he drank all the time, he got drunk all the time, went to bars, and when he saw Christians, he made fun of them. And then one time, a group of Christians invited him to a Bible study, and he went, and he was profoundly affected by their character and their spirit and the way they talked about Jesus Christ. Ultimately, he trusted Jesus Christ as his Lord and Savior. Became a Christian. Felt almost immediately called to be a missionary. He didn't know where or how. He went home and told his dad, and his dad said, no, I got other plans for you. I want you to go into business. I want you to be wealthy. I want you to be successful. He said, Dad, I can't do that. His dad said, well, I'm not going to pay for your school anymore. George said, okay. So he goes back to school. 
He doesn't have money for tuition. So he goes into his room and he shuts the door and he does something he, feel, he wrote in his journal that he felt foolish doing it. But he got down on his knees and he prayed and he asked God for the money to pay for his tuition. Within an hour, there was a knock on the door. One of his professors came to him and said he needed a tutor for some of the students in the school and it was a paid position and it was enough to pay for his tuition. That was the first time that George depended on God and he saw God provide for him. Each of us that knows Christ, we are on a mission for God. We are a slave to God and we are dependent on God. If you're my brother or sister this morning and you know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, how do you respond to a message like this? I think, first of all, you and I have to admit that, that God's plan is that I change into the likeness of Jesus Christ. That's always been his plan with you and me. He wants you and I to become increasingly like him. And where does he start? He starts here. So that increasingly our thoughts, our thinking becomes like the mind of Jesus Christ. But more than that, he says, let the very mind of Jesus Christ be in you. And we begin to think thoughts with him. Hard to understand, but a great reality available to you and me. So if I know that his plan is to change me into the likeness of Jesus Christ, then I also need to understand that I've got to cooperate with that, that process. I've got to allow him to fill my mind with his thoughts. I certainly should take advantage of listening to preaching and going to Bible study and reading the scripture for myself. But ultimately, I've got to take these things that God is teaching me and God is showing me, and I've got to carry it out with a sense of mission into my workplace, into my school, into my home, my neighborhood, my community, my world. If you're here today and you don't know Christ as your Lord and Savior, I want to share with you about the greatest revolution that he wants to make in your life. And it begins by trusting Jesus Christ as your Lord and as your Savior. There are three things that determine whether or not you will experience the Christmas revolution. First, acknowledge that you have rejected God's rule in your life. Without Christ, you and I are doing the best we know to do, and it's usually pretty selfish. We're doing what we want to do, when we want to do it. I'm taking care of me. I got this, and I'm doing the best that I can. Some of us here, though, we begin to realize that that is not working. And everything I do to make my life better, I only make it worse. And I'm hurting people, and I'm destroying my marriage or my home or my family, whatever the case may be. And so I've got to acknowledge that without God in my life, the best I can do is mess up. And I've got to admit that. I can't do life without him. Secondly, I need to believe or trust that Jesus died for my sins on the cross. That everything necessary to accomplish my salvation, he has done for me already. I'll never be good enough. Some of you are thinking, well, I'll, I'll join that church, I'll get right with God, I'll become a Christian when I think I can live that way. You can't live that way. You can't. Make your sins go away. You can't remove the stain. You can't remove the guilt. The only thing that can do that for you is the blood of Jesus Christ shed for you on his cross. And the Bible says that he bore our sins in his body on the tree, Peter writes, so that everything in your life that was offensive, every single individual sin you've ever committed, Jesus took on himself for you. And he died in your place. And so 
when you put your trust in him, when you rely on him, the Bible says what he did for you on the cross becomes effective for you. And all your sins are taken away. The last thing you and I need to do is to confess Jesus as Lord, surrendering to him directional control of my life. And you say, why is that necessary? You know, sometimes we have the idea that I can just trust Jesus Christ as Savior, but I can receive him as Lord later. That's really goofy. That's really odd. If you're out in the middle of a lake and you're drowning and you're not a good swimmer, and I come along to rescue you, I'll tell you what rule number one is. Stop splashing around. Stop pulling me under with you. Be still and let me wrap my arm around you and I'll get you out of here, but you've got to cooperate. And when you and I yield to the Lordship of Jesus Christ, that's what we're doing. If he's going to save you, you've got to yield to him. You've got to let him do the work in you that needs to be done, confront you and convict you and grow you and change you. You've got to cooperate with that process. And the easiest thing you can do is right now as you trust Jesus Christ as your Savior is to also surrender to him as your Lord and say, you are the one in charge. You are the one and only you who can tell me what to do, who can guide me, who can give meaning to what I'm here for. You're the only one that can tell me the truth about myself. You're the only one that can guide me and make my life worth living. And this morning, if you would like to trust Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, it can begin with a simple prayer like this. Let me ask you to bow your head and close your eyes. If you've never trusted Christ, a prayer like this from the heart a prayer that you make your own to God for salvation would sound something like this. Father, God, I realize now that for, for all my life, I've been trying to do it on my own. And I have made my own decisions, made my own call, I've done what I thought was right, I've done what I wanted to do, and I look back now, Father, over course of my life and all I see is the debris of my decisions that have hurt and damaged so many people and so today father I turn from doing life without you and I want now to do life with you and I repent and I thank you that you sent Jesus Christ to die for my sins and I'm sorry for what I've done but I'm thankful that the blood of Jesus makes me clean and I'm trusting him to save me. And Lord, as best I understand right now, I'm giving you my life, all of my life, and I'm surrendering to you all that I am. And I'm asking you to come and take directional control of me and guide me for the rest of my life. And this I pray in Jesus' name.